Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am here to introduce you to our wonderful guest, Peter Loeb. Uh, since 2010, Peter has served as the CEO of Lion Rock Recovery, which he co-founded. Joint Commission accredited Lion Rock is a pioneer in the provision of telehealth substance use disorder recovery services. Over a nearly four-decade career, Peter worked in interactive media and technology development, financial services, and energy. Peter's interest in healthcare grew out of his long experience as a close family member of people struggling with substance use disorders, a very nice way to say that he had alcoholics and addicts in his family. Peter loves rock and funk music, especially Nika Costa, and frequents many live shows. He has three adult awesome daughters and has been married for nearly 40 years. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and loves to play him some squash. He also goes by dad and he is my father. We did this episode because we wanted to introduce another perspective on what it's like to be a member of the family of someone struggling with addiction. And since you heard my story from start to finish, we thought that it would be really cool to have this perspective from the parent uh, over that same period of time. Some really cool things came out, uh, things I didn't know, and um, Peter is gets very vulnerable and shares his experience with both me and uh, his sister. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and you get a better idea that Lion Rock Recovery has a altruistic mission and uh, a little bit about who we are and what we stand for. So with that, episode eight, let's do this. All right. Yeah. So this is a special day. I feel special. We have a very special guest today here. We have uh, Senor Peter Loeb. I'm your dad. He happens to be my dad. So could get weird. And uh, this is very exciting. He's uh, in the podcast booth today, Peter. I do call him Peter because we work together and I'm just used to it. So if that freaks you out, then call your sponsor. I will call you daughter. Okay. (laughs) You will call me queen. So yeah, you told me earlier you had a little frog in your throaty. I do. Yeah. Normally I'm of crystal voice. (laughs) Crystalline. Crystalline. Ah, crystalline. So, okay, what do you want to talk about today? Just mm, kidding, it's my choice. Okay. So we grew up together. Well, yeah, I suppose at this point that's true. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's been quite a ride. Now we've been working together for almost nine years. And that's been fun. Yeah. Do you enjoy that? I do, actually. Okay. Yeah. You're still not the boss of me. Well, but I am, actually. It's a very unfortunate situation I've put myself in. For and years you told me, I I'm am. not the boss, you're not the boss of me, and now, now I am. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. So, well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I've been sober for 13 years. And thank God for that. I got sober January 7th of 2006, 
And during the time before that, the not sober time, mm. you were in charge of my well-being. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't do a very good job. How'd of that. that go? Didn't not so, not no? so good. Yeah. Okay. So well, in the first episode, I told my story. Yeah. Which I know you listened to, and oh my gosh, so. When I told my story. Yeah. You didn't remember how you got to the Avril Lavigne concert. <laughs> yes. So if you, those of you who've heard my story, when I told my story, I didn't remember. I said, like, I have no idea why I was at this Avril Lavigne concert. Because I took you there. With and what? it turns out, yeah. So Peter, with, tell with, us. Uh, with your youngest sister and a friend of the family's. So for all you parents out there, imagine you take two of your kids to a rock concert and you only go home with one of them. Hey, hey. Yeah. So turns out I disappeared. And that's what I remember. I remember from the point of my ex-boyfriend, or my boyfriend at the time, showing up and me leaving with him. And then, of course, what the, an awful human being he is. The, the kidnapping and all that stuff happened from the bar after that. And the night before, I was in the psych ward. The so, night before that? No. Yeah. Before we went to the concert? Mm-hmm. Oh. It all, it all blends together. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that is most useful to say is that early on in your recovery, we had to come to terms around how much talk about all this stuff made sense. Because as, as a person in recovery, you know, you have the disease that tells you you don't have a disease, so you keep, you keep it all fresh, so you mm-hmm. make sure you don't go back. Yeah. As family members, we have to forget we have to forget all the horrible things. None of them are funny to us. In fact, that's one of the hard things for me going to meetings with you, which I enjoy doing, but is everyone's telling their war story. And for me, those are traumatic stories. For me, there's nothing funny about them at all. And I want to laugh with everybody else in the room, <laughs> but I can't. And so, it, so it's been an interesting experience for those of you out there who may be family members or you know, the, that, that dichotomy is, is very much the case, which is, you, you know, as people in recovery have to keep it alive, people who are loved ones have to put it away. Yeah. I, and we've talked a lot about that. And, and my mom, you know, can barely, I mean, you, oh, yeah. you, you're more so able to talk about it oh, a yeah. lot more so. And she, she, can she barely, thinks we're crazy to be in this field. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she, she really can't go near it. What was it like so you, your sister passed away. My, my, our, my aunt, your sister passed away, Karen, um, yep. in 2010 from the, yep. you know, a lifelong battle yep. with addiction. And of course I battled for many years with this. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like, the difference between maybe having a sister and having a daughter sure, in, sure. who's battling it and kind of some of the things that you went yeah. through? Well, and I, I grew up in a household with, you know, my sister who was, you know, at the time pretty young and uh, was struggling with all the things that eventually led to her substance problems being a huge part of her life. But certainly substances appeared reasonably early. So I experienced it also as a sibling. Right. Um, So I've experienced it both as a sibling and, and a parent. I can tell you that, you know, sibling is your peer and you have, particularly when your sibling is an adult, you have an expectation that this person is your peer and is an adult and has certain obligations to meet. So when, you know, if, if that person is not able to be a reasonable, you know, guest or friend or even, you know, relation, you, you, you know, you, it's easier to, to create boundaries and, and stick to them. Did you ever have the feeling like, I mean, is the compassion different? 
Well, I think it's hard to say also because, you know, my first experience with addiction and treatment was when my sister went off to rehab in 1985, um, which I was part of the process of getting that to happen. And at the time, I, I really knew very little about it and and thought like most people that you know you go to rehab for 30 days and you're good right right you know so right. So, so the compassion had to have been different because you didn't understand didn't what you understand were what with. we were dealing with of course by the time we got out to uh you know when i was in my 40s um and you had been to rehab a few times and were struggling with your recovery i knew a lot more about it of course and then that was also the period of time when my sister came back into my life because our dad passed away and she sort of fell under my care. But just as a general statement, when it's your child, you'll do anything, just like you would do anything for your child regardless. When it's your sibling, you'll go pretty far, but it's not like, it's not like when it's your child, your child, you, you know. When you saw me, I mean, when I was little, I remember you comparing me, not in a, not in a derogatory way, but just comparing me to Karen and, you know, things I would do or just, you know, dramatic stuff or whatever, you know, rebellious stuff. Yeah. It's funny. Um, yeah, in retrospect, I mean, I don't actually think you're a lot like Karen. Um, Karen, my sister. You did name yourself Karen. <laughs> oh, this is good. First, you, you, you named yourself Karen. You were four. Wait, how old? Yeah, okay. You were four. You named yourself Karen, and you wouldn't answer if we called you Ashley. Then you changed your name to Karen Lobster. So it wasn't enough for us just to say Karen. You had to be Karen Lobster. Obviously. And then, then about a week later, you were Karen Lobster Karen. Just in case you forgot the Karen mm-hmm. in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So the, were, how yeah. long did you call me Karen Lobster? As long as you wanted, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. You know, uh, you were a spirited child. Um, there were things about you that, that we didn't identify. And again, I would say to parents out there, if you have if you have a child who has a really hard time calming him or herself down, mm. That is something to look at. That is something to look at. If you have self-soothing, a ch- self-soothing, yeah, right. That's a pretty big deal. And so, what did it look like? Well, you know, we would be uh, piling out of uh, Disneyland after an awful, from my perspective, day of, <laughs> you know, too many sugary drinks and long lines for you know minute long you know, rides and all sorts of awful things like that. But you guys loved it, and that was what was important. But we would pile back into the car, and we'd be on our way out. You know, we were staying with uh, my father-in-law, and, uh, who lived, you know, he was an hour and a half away. And uh, and you would immediately want to know what was for dinner, what were we going to do the next day, what were we going to do. Like, it, there was no elapsed time from that activity to your concern about understanding what was going to happen And how next. old was I when that happened? That particular ten, ten, yeah. So basically, I could not be in the moment. No, right. I guess that's true. Well, I think you were in the moment, okay, until that moment ended, and then you were completely at loose ends, and and found that very hard. So that's that's when people ask me, which they do, believe it or not. Um, you know, how do I know of my kid? Blah blah blah. And I always say, are you looking? Look for that. Look for kids who have trouble self soothing. Who who can't? I mean, you you know, another example from from for you was from you know, probably late elementary school, early middle school, where, I mean, you got hundreds on every test you took. My wife and I always used to wonder whose child you really were because (laughs) you you got better grades than either of us ever got. And you would stay up as a kid till all hours and we would have to force you to go to bed because you were studying. And then I'd come home from work the next day and you'd be on your bed crying your eyes out 
because you'd failed the test. You'd failed the test. You knew you'd failed the test. It was your total failure. The world was ending. And then, of course, the test came back 100, 100, 100. So eventually what I did was I collected up a bunch of those tests. And so, and because this was a pattern. And so I, when I found you crying your eyes out, I would just sort of hold up three or four tests and said 100 on them. And I'd say, what, you know, hello? Yeah, yeah it, I do remember that. I remember that well, just like the sheer panic. And I actually had to, I started crying during one of the tests and had to take a break, which was like, you know. Because you were worried you were going to fail while you were taking it? Yeah. And <laughs> we... I don't have that problem. That's not scary. I don't have that problem anymore. But okay. but it was indicative of another thing. And, and you know what's funny is that of course I, my experience right, and this is just like from the kids' experience for parents who are worried about you know like you can't win, which is your attempts to so- soothe yeah. me and say like of course you got a hundred, right? You right. would say you and mom would say of course you got a hundred, Ashley. Like I would, and I was like oh they they expect this of me. They're not proud of me, right? So like <laughs> that was my interpretation yeah. of like. Well, they expect it, so they're not surprised. Right, like right. they're not surprised, therefore they're not impressed. And yeah. and so it was, you know. It of course, was, we told you we were impressed, but but right. But you were so used to it, sure. right? So you you wasn't like you weren't you didn't have a shock on your face. Right. And so I took that to right. me, you know. So it was what what I find interesting when we go back and revisit this stuff is just the child's perspective yeah. and 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 how you. It's so hard. It would you know as a parent, it's almost impossible. I I don't want to say impossible, but almost impossible to win because whatever you're trying to do, right, is I'm interpreting it. And if I don't interpret it the way that you're intending, then it doesn't even matter. Like that's the narrative I have, right? right? I grew up with X narrative. That's the narrative I have. And that's that's how I responded to my life, even if it wasn't true. And many of it, much of it wasn't real. Well, that's the hard, that's one of the hardest things about being a parent is that you you have to be in charge of, you know, where things are going and you can't always explain it. You can't, I mean, you have children yourself, you know that, you know, you can't explain much to a two and a half year old. You can explain some stuff, but they don't have the perspective to understand. And you and I spent a lot of hours, I don't know, you know, more than a decade ago now, thankfully, you know, going over, here's what you perceived as a 10 year old, 11 year old, 12 year old. Here's what I was thinking. Here's what I perceived. Right. And I had those conversations also with your sister Marina about stuff that was going on in the house and that, that she, from a younger person's perspective, perceived in one way because she didn't, she just didn't have the, she didn't have the information and, and there was no way to give her that information because she didn't have the experience to go with it. And, you know, I mean, I think those things honestly go to parenting in any context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, having a child with substance use problem is, makes it harder. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, I think that that, that particular problem is pretty common. So one thing that's, I don't know, not unique is the wrong word, but one thing that you dealt with, with, you know, our battle years was weighing out the ability to parent. So I'm the oldest of three girls and we're all very close in age. And as I'm going off the deep end, late middle school, you, I'm, you know, getting in trouble at school, I'm using, I'm doing all these things. You have two other children to parent and one of which I am pulling into my substance use. Sure. Well, and the other one was there. So right. she's, she, she was right. exposed uh, the, to The youngest one, right. So, But I mean, like, those were the types of things. Right. In a household, as a parent, you know, you know that you know a, a percentage of what's yeah, going on, yeah, right? Yeah. So, like, sure. 
what's that? What's that? You know, talk to us about. Well, I think like you know one of the situation. one of the hard when you have somebody who is oppositionally defiant, which oh. is I think your middle name. I think we changed <laughs> it's that ODD, legally. Oppositional defiance disorder. Yeah, Look it we, up. It's a real thing. I think we changed your middle name to that. It's to ODD. One point. Yeah, you ODD, down with ODD? Ashley, ODD. Yeah, Ashley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, after Karen, lobster Karen. Um, so <laughs> a lot of identity. You know, you, it's really hard to. Di- how do you discipline? I mean, no parents don't like disciplining their kids. It's it's terribly painful. You love these little people. You don't want to. You don't want to hurt them. You don't want to. Disciplining is awful. But if you don't discipline your kids, life does it, and life is much less kind than you. So you you take up that that task because you know you have to. But then what happens when? When you've taken everything away, you don't have your this, you don't have your that, you you don't have your privileges, you don't have your pager was probably the technology of the day. You don't have this. After a while, you've done everything. What are you going to do? Well, that was the thing. I, 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 and we've talked about this, that I basically figured out early on that like, if you don't have anything they can take from you, if you relinquish at, you know, kind of yeah. Buddhist of me, if you think about you it. No, you're so Buddhist. I am so Buddhist. If you relinquish attachment to all these things, what are they going to do? And I was all about like, that is what? Buddhist, I, I know, it was Buddhist in a bad way. But what are they going to do, right? Like what? Buddhist in a bad way. There's. Can there's you think about that? There's yeah. something good there. No, yeah. take. The, I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. I feel. I feel that's bad a to the Buddhist. Bad, bad to the Buddhist. I'm Buddha bad. Buddha bad. <laughs> I like that. That's and we're good. we're changing my name. Yeah. Ashley Buddha bad. Ashley. So. <laughs> Buddha badass. It's Buddha badass. BBD. No, BBA. <laughs> okay, just kidding. Anyway, so the, you know, figuring out like, well, if I do all these things, then you can't punish me, right? So then you're, you're like just fully well, going rogue. Well, and, and as as difficult as that was because of you... How do you set discipline in a house for anybody else if they say, well, Ashley doesn't have to yeah. come home at night? Or right. And whatever. you're like, well, no, she does. She just she does. She's just not doing it. Right. And so, so at the end of the day, the, the, I mean, the long story short is that the decision to gently expel you from the house and send you to treatment was about your sisters. Yeah. Because while there was certainly one train of thought, which was we... This is like having a burn victim at home. You, we're not really set up to handle this. Mm, that's interesting. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like an acute yeah. problem. We don't have the skills right. to, you know. Right. But the flip side was is that really, really it was that we were not providing the safe childhood for your sisters that we owed them as well as you. And, you know, it, it, what happens when you have one child who's got a big problem is you focus there and the others. And I know from from my own childhood that, you know, all the attention went to my sister, who also had substance problems, and uh, my brother was quite sick as a child, so they were there. So I was sort of, I was certainly not neglected, but I was yeah. left to my own devices. And, you know, for me, that was a good thing. But in the case of your sisters, uh, we, you know, we just, we weren't doing the right thing by them. So, so that was really the big, that was the biggest motivator. I will say that the day you went to rehab, I was the only day in my entire life so far that I've just spent in bed staring at the ceiling because it was the first time in at least a year that I wasn't afraid you were going to die that day. And so that was, you know, a relief that is sort of beyond description. I mean, it was, you know, meanwhile, you weren't very happy. And, That's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. but I, understandably so. But there was yeah. just, it, you no, know, I mean, it is, got I, to the point where... As a parent... What I mean, else could you do? Right. I mean, as a parent, I when I had my boys, I just have a whole new perspective, which, you know, you, yeah, of, course, of course, you always told me I would. Yeah. But 
you know, what, and, and, you know, actually I say, I should say that after getting a few years of sobriety and, you know, you guys sent me away to a really awful place and on purpose. Yeah. (laughs) And I was angry about it for a long time and it, it caused some amount of damage. However, what we talked about, not not on purpose, not, no, he was kidding. What we talked about, however, was that at the time, I mean, I was, it was absolutely a serious consideration that I would not make it through the end of the year. I mean, that was not out of the realm of things of what was going you on. You almost died so many times. Yeah. So, I mean, when I went to that, what we what we talked about and when I was a couple of years sober about how that place kept me alive. Kept you alive. Kept me alive. And yes, it was terrible. And, you know, it was. Well, you weren't there that long because you did manage to get thrown out. Uh, no, you pulled me out of there. Well, but. Nine months. They, oh. they wanted you to leave. Oh. Oh. Oh, you didn't know that? No, I thought you pulled me out. Uh, I were. thought you realized. And they came said to they rescue. said you, had, you. They said you had to go to wilderness and start over, or they or they were going to throw you out. Oh. And we were like, "What are you talking about? This is this was your responsibility." And oh, that's interesting. I that's can't a, believe you didn't know that. Here we are in podcast I know, land. We're in podcast land. God, what else is going to come out? I know. I know. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. No. I th- I thought I you know I came home from that and I that was. Well, your mother always hated the place from day one. Not that I liked it, but at the end, you know, again, well, the if problem you're afraid is, I was going to die every day. Right. And you, you know, I mean, where well, your mother always said, this is just a glorified prison. She was right. Yeah. Um, it was worse than prison, but it was, um, Cause they could do whatever the f- they want. It just was, um, you have to do something. Yeah. And that's, that's what happens to you right. in life. Right. Right. Life, and I life was 16. Stuff. So, yeah. I mean, there was, there was, it was, we had, it was a moment in time where there was a, an, an opening and so we, you know. Well, so I came home, right? I came home. And a- after? After Gate, uh, Vista. Right. And I was 17 and I came home and my room has been transformed into the living room that, that we still called Ashley's room, which was funny. And I was sleeping on the, you know, the pullout couch or whatever. And, you know, you guys were trying to figure out what to do with me, which I think a lot of family members deal with. Like, uh, okay, you know, what do yeah, we Yeah, what now? Well, what that now? was one of the things about Lion Rock. I mean, I don't want to, you know diverge too far there. But I mean, one of the things about Lion Rock is we don't throw people out. We don't, right. you know, that's I, I'm, when you're, you know, what, you know, for people who don't know, Peter is also the CEO of Lion Rock Recovery and his big thing, which I agree with it. And it's a very personal thing is like, we're not going to just ditch people because that did happen to me. And, and, and my sister, and, your sister and my so sister, my, our experience was you go to, you go to treatment and they tell you it's a, a safe place to, you know, learn and grow and whatever. And then as soon as you screw it up, out you go. Right. And the reality is that we're people with alcoholism and addiction. Of course, we're going to screw it up. Yeah. I know that <laughs> now. So so that's why we built in a bunch of things into the Lion Rock program that allow us to keep people in the fold, even if they're not appropriate for, you know, group and the outpatient level of Just care like for a few help. days. Yeah, yeah. We can stick with them. We keep working it. Anyway. So I got home and was completely shell-shocked, like quite literally shell-shocked. Like yeah. didn't, it was just... And ended up let's go to that what did you think when i got home after like i had, I had been, no idea I had no but idea i had what been to do. treated right so did you think i was better no okay did you well think- i didn't know you know the thing is i didn't really understand the problem i mean so I, even so that treatment center didn't educate you about no it. not okay. at all so so you didn't really understand the problem did you think the problem was emotional and substance did you think i was an alcoholic i mean i, I didn't have a label for it you just knew something was real. Well, wrong. I knew you, I knew you had a I knew you had a drug problem, but I didn't but I didn't know why. And did you think I was going to use? 
I've never uh, asked, I've I can't never asked remember. I can't remember. I, I think that I, I mean, you always hope not, right? You always right. hope not. But I, I, I don't, I don't remember at yeah. that level of detail. I do remember though that we tried to find a school for you that was not a rehab, right? And that you and I <laughs> went on our crazy trip. Oh my god! You know, looking at some schools on the East Coast. You didn't know I was drunk the whole time. I didn't, and uh, and I, um, you know, and that obviously you know, it didn't work out so well. And of course it culminated in your, your, uh, overdose in your room. So uh, what, I mean, was that, what was that day? Like that was May 17th, was the 2004. scariest day of my life. Um, I, I walked into your room because we were taking you to a psychology appointment and you were kind of dead. Um, you were, I mean, I can joke a little about it now, but not much. Um, you were, your skin was blue, your lips were black, your fingernails were black, you weren't really breathing. There was a hypodermic needle on the ground next to you. Um, actually, you were on the couch. And uh, my mother-in-law was visiting, <laughs> <laughs> just to make it simpler. Yeah. And uh, she and I and your mother uh, crowded around you and attempted to give you you know, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. I mean, we didn't know what to do. I mean, you were breathing, but barely, and your color was just so bad. And well, it was so frightening. And you, your, the muscles in your jaw were locked, so your, your jaw was tight. We couldn't actually even open your mouth to, to breathe in, which was, I mean, I still don't understand why that would have happened, but it did. And so then I, you know, we called 911, and, and we had, you know, if you've ever seen a 911 call on on television you know you hear you hear the uh the people and the, the operators Calm calmly voice. going through the process this and that you hear everyone screaming on the other end of the phone and that was us i mean it was absolutely terrifying and was tori home nobody else was home nobody else was home and when the paramedics arrived they were pretty casual about it they knew what the problem was because they had asked and we, we told them so you knew I mean, it was pretty clear that from the hypodermic needle sitting next to you, right. that you had a heroin overdose, and um, and they just walked in, and I remember thinking, Move "Hurry faster. up!" Yeah. You know what's going on? I mean, and that was you know probably a gentle way of what I was really thinking. I mean, it was actually I had kind of an out of body experience that day. It was really, really weird. But I, I, you know, I remember them being casual because they had Narcan and they knew what was going to happen. They knew that, you know, you were going to come back. And so they, they injected you with Narcan and it was, it, it looked like magic. Yeah. You went from basically dead it, to it awake. It didn't feel like lot. magic. It felt like magic? It did not feel oh, like no, magic. Oh, no, yeah, to you. No, Just you went FYI. into immediate withdrawal. Yeah, yeah, you were angry when you woke up. I was really angry. Well, I also didn't know what was going on. I they I was naked. They cut the, or whatever, from the top, they cut the sweatshirt off. I don't even remember that. They cut, and Tori was mad at me because they cut her, I was wearing her uh-huh. sweatshirt. So they cut her the sweatshirt off, and there's a dude above me, and I'm naked, and there are people around me yelling. So I, I don't remember you being naked, but... Or like with my shirt off. Yeah, I don't even remember that. But yeah. anyway, yeah, it was uh, a big. It was a big. Oh no, it was Marina's sweatshirt. It was Marina's because uh, one of the girls was was. You know, there was some issue that this is the kind of stuff that happens with siblings who have with yeah. substance abuse, where they were like, "I'm really sorry you overdosed," but also they cut my sweatshirt in half, and I'm really pissed about it. It's like that actually happened. <laughs> well, I was if like, they'd, if they'd been there with us, I think they might have had a different, just slightly different right, opinion. Right. Well, and Marina was so angry at me; she didn't come to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Marina was pretty angry with you. Marina basically told us you probably weren't going to make it, so we should just write you off, which was, you know, again, a a sibling response. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, not a parental response. Yeah, that was a really bad day, which I hope never happens to anybody. 
What did that change for your life? Like, what did that, you know, at the time you didn't really know what I had. You didn't know, you you know, you had gone to treatment. You, you know, what did that situation, how, what what was that? Like, what was, how did that change You know, the only way, I'm not really sure to tell you the truth, what, how it actually changed things. What I can say is that, you know, at one point my mother asked me, how do you even stay sane through all of this? And I thought about it for a little while. And what I realized uh, was that we were Buddhists also, that we were like, we would just let it wash over us. And I just, it was complete acceptance. This is what's happening. I didn't question it. And I didn't, I just accepted it. It was, it was, you know, red alert. I mean, we were just, this is what's happening. Were you like, okay, this is, this is life and death and, and like, Oh, it was very life and death. But I mean, did it change your perspective on how serious the problem was? No, it was just more of the same. There were so many other things that happened that were terrifying. I mean, that was, that was the most terrifying, but there were a ton of other things. I guess, I guess what, how it changed for me was I knew that, um, you probably weren't going to be staying home. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we had been hoping that, that, that we could the, the time reintegrate at Vista, yeah, that we would be able to work it out. And I think that made it pretty clear that um, some more work was required. And and we were um, we were incredibly lucky to find Gatehouse Academy yeah. uh, when we did. And they were willing to take you as a 17-year-old, which frankly was probably not legal for them, but they did it. And it's very hard to find treatment for a 17-year-old because they really belong with adults in many ways, but you can't put them with adults and they're going to age out of an adolescent program quickly. And so the programs don't really want to fill a spot with a 17 year old. So it turned out to be very difficult to place you, but that place was fantastic. And there's where you really learned. One, one day um, I, we were visiting and you were standing around at the, uh, at the smoking circle, you know, not a lot of addiction going on at the <laughs> addiction treatment. Silly, but anyway, uh, and and you said to me, you know, Dad, even if you and Mom are the worst parents ever, um, every day of my life I spend being angry about it is a day of my life I'm choosing to waste. And I said, there you go. You got it. You're good. And then and, I went on to relapse two more times. Well, <laughs> I always said about you, you know, some people, are, some people are audio learners. Some people are visual learners. You are a two-by-four between-the-eyes learner. Oh, yes. You know, it it definitely requires, you know, a certain amount of repetition. What's it like with with having a child who's newly sober or, you know, like in those first couple years, you know, and riding that like relapse wave where you're like, okay, okay, we've got this. We've got some momentum. She's doing well. She's doing like when when were you like, okay, we're okay. Like yesterday. Okay. Perfect. (laughs) Um, There's no line of demarcation because... You know, one of the hard things as family members is, and again, I go back to Lion Rock, which, you know, is so integrated into my experience. Right. Um, well, it's as a the, result of your experience. Exactly. And I mean, a lot of things that, that I didn't like about our experience are things that we've tried to do. Right. You know, with Lion Rock, where you can connect people who are far apart, in, you know, geographically or, you know, just can't make it together. And, you know, family week at, a, at in residential treatment was... <laughs> Peter had so many family weeks. A lot of family weeks. <laughs> a lot of family weeks. Anyway, so... Um, no, we've talked about it really. Seriously, everything. We know everything. Yeah, a lot of family weeks. Yeah. So, uh, but the problem with family week is, and for those of you who don't know, family week occurs sort of midway through treatment where 
the family shows up and you and five other families sit in a room together in uncomfortable chairs <laughs> for way too many hours and to, at first, your absolute terror and dismay, you know, share your intimate story with everybody else in the room. Yay. Now, of course, your loved one's been doing that for... Yeah, weeks, yeah, months. But it's, it's, it's a new experience. And, and also it's, you know... But that's as, where you learned, you know, this is important to talk about because that is where... That's where things changed in our relationship because you you got it. You like, I mean, not at the level, but at, at, yeah. at like, yeah. it was like you understood something that you had never understood yeah. before. Well, before before we go there, I just want to say, just finish that. Oh, yeah. That the, the issue with, with the family week is, is that when you come in, you still are kind of, you know, really angry with your loved one because your loved one left under duress in some way or another, was stealing from you, was lying to you, uh, was disrupting the rest of your life, was in grave danger all the time. And and you haven't had any, I mean, it's only been four weeks or five, six weeks yeah, or whatever it is for you. For them, your loved ones have been working hard every day, ideally, trying to make progress right. on it and haven't, hasn't been able to show you progress. So you show up and they show up and your loved one's like, oh, uh, look, I've had all these revelations. I'm a new woman. Yeah. And we're like, no, I still kind of hate you. you yeah, know? I'm like, oh my gosh, it's been 20 days and I am new woman. I'm a different person. out and you're Yeah, like, and we're like, no. no. So one of the things about, about you know, telehealth and, and video conferencing is you can, you know, you could fly alongside. We could have multiple check-ins rather than waiting until right. having one big one. But but what is nice about having everybody in the same room, and I will I will say, after you get over the shock of it, is, you know, you see, wow, these are, these are other nice families and these kids, their kids are smart and seem nice enough and they're trying really hard. They've all taken a second mortgage on their house to send their child to treatment. And you realize how, how much of the, how the whole problem is bigger than you are because it, as parents, you, you know, you, you hope that you're in control of your children. You have that responsibility. And so if you, <laughs> but, but, you know, you're not, you're not able to control things and, and to understand that this, that, this is a, you know, a disease on top of a, a psychological problem, typically of some sort, that it's, it's bigger than you. It's bigger than you wouldn't, you know, let them have a later curfew or, or you didn't tell them they were, you know, a great student one day or whatever it was that you're bad at, you know, that they've been telling you you're bad at, of course, for years, that, that there's more at work there. And so I think that was, that was actually, to your second question, very helpful because I was able to see that, that we weren't alone. You know, the, the shame and the stigma. I mean, we had, you know, uh, your sister's friends, families wouldn't let them come over to our house while you lived there. And as one of the deans at, uh, the, the dean at the middle school that they were going to told my sister's best friend who was new at the time to the school, told her mother, told her mother to stay away from my sister, not me. I was gone to stay away from my sister. Yeah, we were bad news. Yeah. Bad seed. But people don't understand. They don't understand. But, you know, what they do understand is there's danger there. And, again, you're a parent now. I get it. I Why would you send your kid into... I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And I get it. And I do get it. And I... So as as parents, when you're dealing with this kind of problem, there's no no sanctuary. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, I think that's, you know, that's the bond. I mean, certainly people coming out of treatment together have an enormous bond. And we feel, you know kindred spirits with the parents of, of the people yeah. that you're friends with. Still, we For saw sure. them at a wedding last year and, yeah. you know, we've, we've, we've all been to war together. 
Yeah. Yeah. We've all, it's for sure. We've all been to war together. I want to drop into uh, one more topic before we start to talk about the recovery piece and, and, you know, living together and with this, I mean, frankly, family recovery, which is something that's very stereotypical for, for daughters with addiction and, you know, hold your seat. I know this is not your favorite topic. I want to talk to you about the older boyfriends who come along very often with the young girls who are struggling with substance abuse, who are basically these guys who are running the show, which is just the common thing, the boyfriend, the bad seed, he's the problem, blah, blah, blah. First of all, if you're a parent listening to this, you're right. They are the worst humans on the planet. (laughs) Okay. So just now we've got that clear. Yeah. Okay. They are the worst humans on the planet. They are preying on somebody who's weak and is not in a position to oppose them. They are typically people who have that need. They have that need for control and frankly are often evil. And I'm not a big, you know, they're evildoers kind of guy, but in particular, this one is an evil man. So, you know, my, my mind in this case, um, Devin was the, you know, the first person to put a needle on my arm and, mm. and the, you know, caused incredible, incredible grief and strife in our family. And often there was a battle between my alliance to him and my alliance to my family. And I think that is something I hear it all the time. Like there's this driving force, there's this partner. And as a, you know, as a family member, uh, mother or father, parent, you know, how do you navigate or what would you tell people? Obviously there's no like good solution, but what would you tell someone you you think about someone who's in say, I'd say probably what I would say for advice is sadly is you need to remove your child from the situation. The fact is, is that when you're dealing with a child, even a child who looks and sounds like an adult, right? You know, one of the biggest mistakes that, that we as parents made was as, you know, father of three daughters is, you know, we often mistook sophistication for maturity. Right. You know, you, sophistication is relatively easy to come by. It comes with genetics. It comes with, you know, cultural understanding. Right. Right. You, I mean, you, 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 you look grown up, you, you're, you're smart, you're able to assimilate a lot of information, but the maturity to handle what's going on is still something that takes some time. And I think particularly in our culture, you know, where young women have more freedom than probably ever before, this is one of the downsides. And I'm not saying it's enough that you'd change that. I, I don't think it is, but, but you, you can't control the boyfriend. The boyfriend is not is not in your family. You can try to have the boyfriend arrested, which crossed my mind. But at the end of the day, I decided that that the focus on you was more important. That 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 you know the boyfriend. You know, I don't really care what happens to him. He's a lost cause anyway. I'm going to focus all of my energy on on you, on my daughter. And in fact, I told him at one point that that something very much to that effect that basically I was going to focus on you and that he was going to stay away and that if I had to turn my focus toward him, it was not going to be a pleasant experience for anybody, but that if he really cared about you, allowing me to do that, to take care of you and to him to stay away would be, you know, proof of that. And, uh, and because he was, you know, at his heart, you know, a BSer, he couldn't tell me no. Right. You know, he couldn't say, no, I don't, that's not what I want. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's no good solution, unfortunately. I mean, I, I would say the solution is, is that, is that you have to, you have to get your daughter, if, if you have a daughter in that situation, 
a way to another place. To, I mean, and, and there's, no, there's no guarantees that he won't follow, and there are no guarantees that she won't find someone else like that. I think that the key to the whole thing is you just never give up. It doesn't matter what happens. You never give up, you know. And I think, I think if, you, if you don't give up, even if you don't win, you at least can look yourself in the mirror, you know. Yeah. And that's pretty critical. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So you have a, you know, getting in me, I get sober and I get into UCLA. Yeah. And, we, you know, our family is starting to heal. How do you put aside that feeling like it's never, like it's a daily reprieve, right? You, so at this point, you know, when I got sober, we had been through all these treatment centers, all yeah. these therapists, yeah. all these, and you knew you understood at a very deep level, having seen me relapse several times, my last relapse being, you know, quite horrendous. And luckily I wasn't there for that one. Right. So, but you were under, you like, you sure, knew understood. like yeah, this yeah. is not yeah. a permanent thing. Like this is a daily yeah. requires regular work. Like what's that like, how do you relax? How do you, how do you get rid of the adrenal fatigue that comes with having a child in rec- like, yeah. how, how does that transition happen? That's a good question. Because you're not, you don't wake up every day worried that I'm going to drink. No, I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm sure there have been times where you've been very concerned, but I don't think at 13 years, right? I don't. No, think I don't. A, I don't. I don't so worry. When, I don't worry when, about that. When um, do you think that happened? Right, because that probably didn't happen for a while. It, it, you know, I think I think that it's it's less the worry about you know the, a, a relapse per se, and it's more about focusing on helping you or watching you build a life, building a life in recovery. Are you working whatever program you should be working? Are you getting the education you need? Do you have friends who seem like they have their act together and are positive influence on you? You know, do you have a job? Do you have a boyfriend who is human? Unlike some of the ones who proceeded. <laughs> um, I think that that it's really those things that build that builds some confidence that, that you're going in the right direction. And then also, you know, trust is, I mean, you, you know, you didn't have a key to our house for a lot of years, yeah. right? And, you know, you get to a point where we gave you a key to the house again. Like you, right. you build trust. Are, are, <laughs> <laughs> are you, are you trustworthy? There was a long period of time you were not trustworthy. No, absolutely not. I was not trustworthy. And, and so, you know, I think that, I think. Uh, How, I mean, did it take? It was years. Yeah. Yeah. It was years. Yeah. It, it's, it's. I mean, it's something you want, of course. but what happens, what happens with anybody, and, and of course this isn't, you know, isolated to addiction, but you know, when somebody burns you enough times, you, you know, you protect yourself, right? Yeah. You, you, and that's what happens with anybody and not, it's not, not just you. I've seen it lots and lots of times and heard about it many more that, you know, that's what happens. People, people just don't trust you and they you know, they're not willing to trust. And so that, I think the the rebuilding of trust is really as important as anything in terms of having the worry about relapse go away. I mean, I know it's possible. But I mean, there's trust, right? There's that trust piece yeah. that we, that we have. And then there's also, 
you know, you're trusting me, but you know, I have this disease that tells me I don't have a disease that I have to work yeah. on. Like how often does that come up for you? You know, I've, I built a cell downstairs <laughs> in our basement so that for- if you relapse, I'll just lock you up there. <laughs> that's what the Russians do. You know, yeah, I, I read an article, the Russians, that's what they, uh, they have these rehabs go. that are just prisons and they yeah. just put you in there. And that worked like, so well when I was a teenager. really well. Well, we could try it again. <laughs> I mean, you uh, you know, second times a charm. Yeah. Yeah. So I honestly don't worry about it that much. And that's not to say that it's not a real danger, but I know I know that you have it in hand. I know that you have a husband and children who count on you, and I know that that is, I know how that feels. So I know that you're paying attention to that. So, you know, you could get hit by a truck too, and I'm not worried about that. I could get hit by a truck. I'm not worried about that. I mean, those things are... Right. You know, again, if you stopped if you stopped working a program, if you started doing a lot of erratic things that I knew were sort of counter to what you should yeah. be doing, then we would intervene right away. I wouldn't wait till you, you know. Yeah. That, yeah, you know what it looks I like. I would be oiling those that the <laughs> door on that set. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Just for listeners, I will not lock her in my basement. <laughs> Are you kidding? Do not go look there. <laughs> if she disappears. <laughs> um, we have everything under control. So now you have grandsons who yeah. are the children of two <laughs> recovering alcoholics. Some people have a college fund. <laughs> we have a rehab fund. There you go. Yeah. And so you've you've now transformed. You, you worked on Wall Street. You worked in entertainment and video games, music. I mean, I could go on. You, I think yeah, you, I know. It, we could probably go to. Is, we should just name the industries no. you haven't worked in. I don't think you've ever been a garbage collector. So... Yeah, but if you clean a vacuum cleaner... You're a vacuum cleaner. There you go. There you go. So now you've dedicated your life to I know. this topic, right? Woohoo! Woohoo! All that like, oh, we want to forget. We don't need to talk. Well, you know, I, you know, people do say to me, how do you... And including your mother, my wife. And the truth is, is that I would be a terrible counselor and I could not absorb... Hence the, you could get hit by a truck any day. I could. Yeah, I could lock you in the basement. I could lock you in the basement. Yeah. Um, See, I, problem solved. Problem solved. I don't absorb the energy of it. You know, I asked Joan Schumacher who, you know, retired tired from working with us yeah. uh, after many years um, recently love her you know how Joan how do you how do you go through every day listening to everybody tell their story and it it's one horror story after another how do you not absorb that and she said well I focus on the future and the possibilities for these people I mean I'd like to think I could do that but I don't think I could do that I think it would I mean I, I know that I know that just engaging with the haters online gets to me over time <laughs> yeah. um, so I don't really feel even though I, I know what we do is what we do I am not on the front line so, you know, you you are the CEO of Lion Rock Recovery, as we mentioned, and this has been, as you've called it, your revenge against addiction. Yep. And you I know, want for, a piece back. Yeah, for taking your sister and, and almost taking your daughter. And, you know, we, we've been on this journey together and, you know, really had, it's been a fight. Like we have, it's been a... Oh, it's a, it's, it's a really hard business. It's a really hard business. You know, I've been in a lot of businesses, as you mentioned. And, you know, the first thing that makes it hard is that so many people in our field are are dishonest. And I had no idea that was going to be the case. And to be honest, I was shocked. You know, I, I worked on Wall Street for years. I mean, and, and people there are much more <laughs> more disciplined and clean than 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 people I see in our field. Yeah. Um, and that's really troubling. And then, of course, that's accelerated with the opioid crisis 
to become a thing. So now in the press, all you read about when you read about addiction treatment is the bad stuff, is the bad people doing the bad things. And we aren't them. And, you know, like they say in politics, when you're explaining, you're losing. And so that's, that's I find that very challenging. You know, we, the work we do is important work. I, I, if you get a chance to go to our website and listen to some testimonials, you hear our clients in their own voices and their own words telling you about their experience with us. And, and, and when I have let a me ba- just interrupt real quick for anybody who doesn't know, Lion Rock Recovery does intensive outpatient treatment, which are outpatient treatment online through video conference. So it's telehealth right. for substance right. abuse. Exactly. Yeah. Which sounds like that can't be a great idea, but actually it's fantastic because people get to connect from a comfortable place for them. They, they feel ready to open up and talk and safe enough to do it. Um, and it's very private. I mean, it's, it, I mean, there's no privacy in going away to residential care. Hi, bye, I'm leaving. See you in, I don't know. Right. Oh, <laughs> um, or, you know, let's yeah. drive over to the local hospital and take the elevator to the behavioral health floor three times a week. I won't run into anybody I know. Right. How could that happen? So it's very, very private. And, and it seems like an obvious thing. Uh, but we've, we've, of course, because anything new is you know, suspect, uh, we except, have, except it's been nine years. Yeah. Now it's accepted. Yeah. And now, and now, now it is. You're right. People now. used to walk by when we early on, when I would exhibit at a conference and they would literally laugh literally. Yeah. Oh, you, or you can't do that. Okay. Okay. Well, we're doing it. So I'm not sure why we can't, but so it's a difficult business. And then the insurance companies are difficult to deal with. And I mean, no one should feel sorry for us. We chose it. It's very rewarding to be able to do work that, that helps people, you know, helps people really. I mean, I've been in the entertainment business and it's great to entertain people and, you know, games are fun. Music is fun. I like all those things. And, uh, I worked on wall street where it's a lot easier to make money. And, uh, that was nice. That aspect of that was nice, but you know, here we're really, we're, we're doing good work. We're, we're really contributing to the welfare of the people that we work with. And I, I, particularly at this phase of my life, I, that's an important thing to me. I think I would have a hard time just making widgets and selling them unless, that was all I, you know, I mean, obviously I've got to pay the rent, so um, I would do what I needed to do. But as far as having the choice, and I feel grateful that I have the choice, um, we have some great investors who have supported us all along. And, you know, and we, you know, we started out thinking we were going to be part of the, the mainstream addiction treatment world, that we were going to be aftercare from residential treatment, because that's, frankly, that's what I knew. And so, and the people that we recruited to work with us early on, that's what they knew. But it's turned out that people find us online and they tell us uh, that they wouldn't get help any other way. And most people listening probably don't know, but, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the people who struggle with a substance problem get help for it. And somewhere between 80 and 90% don't. And, in our field, there's a lot of talk about why can't we reach those people? And the answer is because we we just didn't have the right product for them. We well, didn't. We, we, tr- we have been an industry, a field that has only treated at the acute level. That's, that's why. right. 
That's right. Because people, you know, people basically have had to wait until they have had it is so bad that they're willing to do that. Not private, expensive. They're willing to take extreme measures. Right. And really what we've been doing and what our goal was and what we talked about was what if we could reach the Karens, the Ashley, you know, whomever before it was so bad that they had to be removed from their situation for extended periods of time. What if we could teach them about the coping skills in the environments where the triggers are happening? Because I know for me, I would get sober, you know, go to treatment. I'm in this place. There's no alcohol. I have counselors, blah, blah. I get out. And yes, I've been told how to deal with that trigger. Like they told us while we were in the treatment center, but now I'm actually experiencing the trigger and I'm not in a safe, you know, shielded environment and my therapist isn't right there. And, you know, and so how do I do that? And I I personally was so institutionalized because I was in treatment for so long, just an extended period of time that that was such a struggle. And I know that our clients are dealing with triggers, you know, as they're happening. And that's, and that's, that, that point of view is actually coming to be accepted among the health plans. And that's, that's a good thing because you're right. And, and I love when he says that. Yeah, you're right. But I'm still the boss here. Mm, that burns. And, and, you know, we, we, we talk about this all the time that people actually, they don't think to themselves, oh, I've got an alcohol problem. They think I've got a life problem. I've got a stress problem. <laughs> totally. You yeah. know, alcohol is just a piece of, right. And that's prob- and and that's true. It's a symptom of right. the problem. Right. I mean, they're not wrong. It's a solution to the problem. It's a solution, right? It becomes the problem. It right. starts out as a solution. Right. And, and that's, you know, one of the things I always think about is, is that if, you know, poor alcoholics, you know, they, they're yeah, poor, us. poor alcoholics. They're, they're using, they're using something that we, the rest of us normies, muggles can consider something fun that we associate with pleasure. So because we see you doing that, you know, first thing in the morning, we think, oh, <laughs> you just want a party. Right. But what we don't realize is that you're using right. it as an analgesic, that you're trying to dampen your feelings of anxiety, of fear, of stress that are coming from the stuff that's causing. Right. We're not partying. We're using it to get to normal. Right. And people don't understand that. And one, one of the things I say to, like say to people just because it sounds shocking is, what if they were drinking motor oil? You know, then you'd really understand, right? Because you wouldn't see them with a bottle of vodka. You'd see them with a bottle of motor oil and you'd think, wait, you're drinking motor oil? What? We'd, Why would you do that? We'd all be in psych hospitals. Well, I mean. If the shoe, yeah, fits. The shoe fits. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's true. <laughs> been, had a few, yeah. few tours. Yeah. So, you know, what's it like working with your kid who... Oh, it's awesome. Well, I think it's been very healing for me. I know it's been very healing for me. I I can't speak for you. Um, It's been... No, you can't. Well, I can't because I'm not really the boss you on that. (laughs) But it continues to be very healing because you've been able to not only come back into the fold, but contribute to this enterprise that's focused on the thing that hurt us in the first place. So So what you're saying is... Yeah. This is public. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. All of the years yeah. of pain and suffering were that, so worth it. No. Well, so, so I basically, no, I was the, the sacrificial lamb here because I had to, I got this disease, right? This alcoholism had to go through this stuff. And then I had to go through all that treatment to be able to get the training that I need to help start our company. You planned that all out, right? It was, it was basically, basically I'm an investor in the company. Right. Because no. How's that work? Yeah. I think we need to ask your mother and see if she agrees. No. 
think I, I just yeah. I, see. Basically, it was this well, you know, yeah. fine tuned plan. Yeah, right. Yeah, not, not for me. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's it's. It just worked out that it way. It just worked out. No, we've been we've been lucky. Um, and no, and working with family, you know, is I I mean, historically over the eons, people always work with their families, right? You were right. always in the family business, so right because of that trust, right? You well, know. and also, yeah, well, yeah, proximity. But yeah, yeah, it's been. I mean, for me, it's been very healing. It's been really fun to have this project together and. Um, this project, it, it started as this a project. Life. Yeah, this life. Yeah, because it's you know it's funny when we talk about Lion Rock. It's our. It's, it, In your it, life, it's 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 everything. I mean, it's yeah. all of it. It's it's what we've been doing. And I remember sitting in in an office, and it was just the three of us: you, me, and Ian, our, our other co-founder. And we were talking about this idea and talking about how we were going to do it. And you guys were giving me direction. That was like, pull a rabbit out of a hat and just do something. I, I don't even remember what it was. I just remember thinking like, you've got to be kidding me. How am I going to do? We don't, this isn't a company. This is a desk. And then I remember desperately being like, I need to, I got to quit. I got to do something else because we changed the business plan like three times within the course of a few months or in the early days. And I had been telling people, going out and telling people what the first one was. And then you guys called me. You're like, actually, we're going to change this. I'm like, that changes the whole business plan. I just went out and told all these people, all these people what we're doing. Now we're not even doing that. And how many iterations and, and just my my ability to adapt has changed so dramatically because I really struggle to from – I really struggle. Yeah, and and to create <laughs> to create from nothing. Like I'm good at when you bring me in and in the middle and and work the systems, but it was such a challenge in the beginning to go from literally nothing, absolute like like a PowerPoint to we employ. I mean, it's you know. Well, you know, it's it's there's a lot of it is faith, and you have to basically suspend disbelief. You have to say right. we can do this. Um, you know, I, I had the, the luck of having a mentor when I was a, a young guy, when I was a kid, who I saw do the same thing. Uh, he was a teacher at our school and he decided, you know, uh, the, the details aren't interesting, but he, he, he wanted to start a bunch of activities. We started a sport at the school. Not, we didn't invent one. We, we, he wanted lacrosse to be at our, at our school. And so I saw how he did it. And I saw what he, I saw all the steps and he went from, we had nothing to, we had a, a full on lacrosse team a year later. And, you know, the, having learned those things early, it never occurs to me that you can't do it. <laughs> I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Now it does, it, it doesn't always work, but, yeah. but I never worry that because it doesn't exist, it can't exist. I, I'm, I'm sure it can. And so it's just a question of, can we make it fit? And of course, that's the fun part. I mean, you know, one, once a company becomes real, it's, it's work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, early on, it's, it's play. It's, we're imagining like, oh, it'll be like this and it could be like that. And once you get going, it's more like, oh, we're going to run out of money if we don't fix these five problems, but we can only fix two of them. Which two? Yeah. Um, oh, you know, so... That's, you know, it's uh, being an entrepreneur, is, it, it's a lifestyle. It's not a job. Yeah. And, and it's a really bad idea for people. Um, I often ask people, do you prefer fear or boredom? And people usually say, what? And I say, no, I know you don't like either. Which, which one? Because if you pick boredom, if you don't pick fear, 
you really shouldn't be an entrepreneur because the downside of working, having a job and working in a company is it's boring sometimes. It's annoying. You, you know, you have to do what you have to do and push through. Uh, being an entrepreneur is never boring and it's terrifying about half the time. It's um, <laughs> completely accurate. And you have to be, you have to learn how to suppress the fear. A- actually, you have to learn how to let the fear wash over you. It's kind, of, it. it's kind of what we were talking about before about, yeah. you know, what do you, you do? You have to learn how to cope with feelings and, right. and feel your feelings. I mean, washing, yeah. a feeling washing over you is really the ability to a, to let a feeling take over and let it pass, right? Right. To feel it and let it pass. We really are Buddhists. We are Buddhists. Yeah. I'm going to have to come up with a Buddhist name for you. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was Buddha. What was it? Oh, Buddha badass. Buddha badass. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. It's too bad it couldn't have been my AOL screen name when I was 12. Buddha, little Buddha badass. Little Buddha badass. <laughs> A-W-L. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's about really being able to feel your feelings and I've definitely had to. Maybe, maybe being an entrepreneur, maybe we should start a recovery track where you see, this is what happens when you you become an entrepreneur. entrepreneur. It's like, it's, it's like part of your recovery is learning how to be an entrepreneur because that enables you to deal with uncertainty. No, it enables you to experience uncertainty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll have counselors along with you all the time saying, you know, oh, oh, we're not going to make payroll next week? No, don't worry. Just let go of it. Let it wash over you. (laughs) (laughs) Feel your feelings. No attachments. Yeah, no attachments. Well, just as we wrap up, what advice would you give to parents in the thick of it um, with a kid? They're in the thick of it. They don't know what to do. It's really simple. Just don't give up. Don't give up. Try everything you can. Don't give up. You'll hear a lot of like, oh, you need to, you need to let that kid, you know, live out on the street under a dumpster because it'll, that's the only thing that works. Well, that's your choice. I, I will say, actually, apropos of your question, you get a lot of advice from people. And you get a lot of advice from people who know more about, you know, addiction and treatment and recovery than, than you do. But they're not the parent of the child. And the decisions you make will last a lifetime, good or bad. And for the people who are the experts who are giving you advice, you're just one more person they're giving that advice to. And even if they engage with you and they help you for a year or two or whatever it may be, it's just a year or two. And you're going to live with whatever the decisions are for the rest of your life and whatever the outcomes are. So don't like follow your gut. Don't decide that you don't know what's right. And there are a lot of times when people, they say, oh, well, you have to be hard with, you know, people and you have to, uh, I mean, yeah, you, to some degree. But if it doesn't make sense for you to allow your daughter to live under a dumpster, don't do it. That doesn't mean you bring her home and give her everything under the sun and, you know, give her access to your bank account and the keys to the car, but it's your decision. So, so make sure you make it from the heart and you just stick with it and just don't give up. Don't give up. Well, thanks for not giving up on yeah. me. I love you. Love you. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. 
We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 